Acts 17, verses 1 to 9 are the verses before our attention this morning. Turn in your Bibles or on your devices or use the screen. Acts 17, 1 to 9. Hear the word of God. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason was welcomed, welcomed them, excuse me, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Verse 9, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. When we last considered the second missionary journey of Paul, when we were studying Acts chapter 16, we saw that Paul evangelized in Philippi. He water baptized new believers in Philippi. He got arrested and imprisoned in Philippi. And by an earthquake, he was miraculously set free from prison. He said goodbye to the convert Lydia and the other believers in Philippi. That's what happened in the chapter preceding our chapter. And from Philippi, Paul and Silas walked 100 miles. I've never done that, have you? They walked 100 miles to the major city of Thessalonica. When you search the New Testament, you see that the Apostle Paul's strategy for evangelism was to evangelize main and large cities and then to have the city-dwelling converts to Christ go out to evangelize the regions surrounding their particular cities. You know, Nassau has some things in common with ancient Macedonia. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. And of course, Nassau is the capital of the Bahamas. Thessalonica had an excellent harbor. Nassau also has a world-class harbor, multiple large cruise ships-sized harbor. Thessalonica was the main business center of its area, and Nassau, by far, is the main business hub for all the Bahamas. Thessalonica was located on several land trade routes, and Nassau is the major player for airline travel for all of the Caribbean. Thessalonica was a Gentile city 
which had some Jewish citizens, and Nassau is a Gentile city, but thankfully there are Jewish citizens and residents and visitors in our city. So what did Paul and Silas do in the in Thessalonica, what did they do? Well, first thing they did was they went to the local Jewish synagogue, verses one and three. Now, when they had traveled, they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, in other words, he's done this before, according to his custom, he went to them in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. That's what they did. This synagogue gathering place would have had both Jews, of course, but also Gentile proselytes, Gentile converts to Judaism. And it says that the apostles minister the word there inside the synagogue in Thessalonica only for three Saturdays, only for three Jewish Sabbaths. After the three Sabbaths, the apostles continued to minister the word of God, but outside of the synagogue, still in the city of Thessalonica. We know that they did so because Silas and Paul were in Thessalonica long enough to receive two separate financial gifts from the fledging new church was, that was at Philippi, 100 miles away. They didn't have FedEx, they didn't have UPS. By the way, if they merge, we're gonna get fed up. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> they didn't have FedEx, they didn't have UPS, they didn't have money wires. So the financial gift to move from Philippi 100 miles to Thessalonica would take more than three weeks. So they were there more than three Sabbaths. It says in Philippians 4, 15 to 16, the imprisoned apostle Paul said to the church that supported him, and you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, 100 miles away, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So yes, they ministered the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the Thessalonican synagogue, but they did so after they didn't do it in the synagogue, they did it outside of the synagogue in the city. That's how they could be there long enough to get two separate financial gifts from the Philippian Christians. So, Paul and Silas went to the synagogue in Thessalonica, and what did they do there? Because what they did there has timeless application to what we should do here. What they did by way of witnessing Jesus Christ in Thessalonica, we must be doing similarly as we share Jesus Christ in Nassau or wherever our hometown is if we're visiting today. So what do they do? They did four things according to the text. They reasoned, they explained, they gave evidence, and they proclaimed. So let's uh, see these four in verses two and three. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned, there it is, with them from the scriptures, explaining, there it is, and giving evidence, there it is, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, there it is, proclaiming, is the Christ. So four things they did are four things that we do. They reasoned in the scriptures. They explained the scriptures. They gave evidence from the scriptures of Jesus Christ's messianic personhood and work. And they proclaimed Christocentric scripture. Now we need to understand these four things that the apostles did in Thessalonica because again, all four of the things that they did, we should be prepared to do as we interact with lost persons, even if it's not in a Jewish synagogue in Nassau. What do they do first? The text says they reasoned. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. That is to say, Paul dialogued with the persons who were in the synagogue. He didn't do a content dump like a big dump truck and just dump facts on those people. He reasoned with them. He had interaction with them. He had two-way street communication with them. He reasoned with them about the scriptures. He fielded their questions. And he gave them answers, not from his own personal opinion, but from the scriptures. We should do the same. Scripture was back then primary, and Scripture today still must be primary when we share the gospel. You've heard me say that my opinion plus seven bucks will get you a coffee at Starbucks. Because my opinion isn't worth very much. But what I know about God's word What I see and share from God's word, that is eternally priceless. We don't share our opinions. Don't bother sharing your opinions. But share what you know the Bible says about the question at hand. Which means you have to know what the Bible said about certain questions at hand. We can read a lot of books. But don't get to the end of your life and you wish you read this book more. Well, Paul reasoned, but secondly, Paul explained. He explained. Verse 3, first word, explaining. Paul explained the scriptures. He opened the scriptures with them. That is to say, Paul read them the scriptures, and then he made those scriptures plain for them to understand. That's my role every Lord's Day. In my study, I study God's word, original languages and grammar and syntax and cross-references and all that. But my job when I step in this pulpit is to know what the meaning is of the verses I am preaching because a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. I need to know what the Bible is saying And then I need to explain it to you with the Holy Spirit's help so that we all can understand what the Bible is saying. Paul was explaining the scriptures to the people in the synagogue. He was opening the scriptures. He was reading the scriptures. And he was explaining 
The scriptures, still the right thing to do when we're witnessing or when we're ministering to anyone. Explain the Bible. The third thing that he did was he gave evidence. It says in the verse, and giving evidence of what? That Christ had to suffer, cross, and rise again from the dead, resurrection. The gospel is Christ died for our sins, crucifixion, and rose from the dead, resurrection. Don't give out gospel tracts that don't have both. If you're using a gospel tract that only talks about crucifixion, you have half the gospel. Make sure you're giving out tracts that have both. It's like saying, what's more important? Which wing of the airplane do you want? You need both. So he was giving evidence of Christ's crucifixion and of Christ's resurrection. And he would have been pointing out from the Old Testament the Messianic prophecies which predict that Messiah would both die a cruel death. By the way, when Isaiah predicted Christ's crucifixion, the Phoenicians hadn't even invented crucifixion when Isaiah moved to the Holy Spirit, talked about the Messiah going to be pierced. And so we need to give evidence that the scriptures point to Christ and no one else as being the promised Messiah for the Jews and the Savior of the world for Jews and Gentiles. Paul had the Old Testament scriptures open and went to the Messianic prophecies about Messiah being crucified and killed, suffering, and about rising from the dead after being killed. That's what he did. He gave evidence. He didn't stop there. He didn't, he didn't just reason, and he didn't just explain. He didn't just give evidence. Fourth, he proclaimed Christ to them. Text says, this Jesus, the one that was predicted to be crucified, this Jesus, the one who was predicted to rise from the dead. By the way, when a Bahamian tells you they believe in Jesus, do me a favor and ask them with a smile on your face, which Jesus? Because in this country as well, every other country on earth, there's a redefinition of Jesus and people who aren't yet saved redefine Jesus to be who they want him to be. An ATM for cash blessing. A guarantor of physical healing in every circumstance. A moral teacher. When someone says to you they believe in Jesus, smile and say, which Jesus? Tell me about your Jesus. So, Paul proclaimed, to quote the text, this Jesus, the Jesus of messianic prophecies, the Jesus of miracles he did before the cross, this Jesus, the Savior of the world, this Jesus, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, this Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Definite article, the, not a Christ. Not one of many saviors. The Christ. The only Christ. This Jesus, this is the proclamation. This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And Paul's proclaiming, 
was preaching. Paul's proclaiming was announcing. Paul's proclaiming was lauding, lifting up Christ. Paul's proclaiming was celebrating the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for proclaiming is katalango. It means to proclaim. It means to preach. It appears 18 times in the New Testament, that verb does. And one of those 18 times is in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, the passage on the Lord's Supper or communion, when it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, or you preach the Lord's death until he comes. This means that every blood-bought, redeemed, converted child of God who comes to the Lord's Supper is a preacher that Sunday, during the ordinance. When we take the bread, reminding us of Christ's sinless life, when we take the cup, reminding us of of Jesus Christ's sin-atoning, shed blood, we are preaching. This happened to come home to me in the church in Pennsylvania that I came to you from, when after a communion Sunday, a young college and career age brother in Christ came to me after and said, Pastor, amazing thing happened during communion today. I said, tell me about it. He said there was a man who sat beside me. He was visiting the church. He'd never been here before. He said that he wasn't a Christian. And the service started, and he watched us all sing, and he watched the scriptures be read, and he watched us pray. And then when it came to the Lord's Supper, I turned to him. I said, you shouldn't partake of this until you're a Christian. And he didn't partake of it, Pastor. But as the elements were being passed out, he asked me about 20 questions about Christ. And I tried to answer his questions, Pastor. And by the end of the service, this visitor turned to me and said, could you help me to know what it means to become a Christian? Because 400 believers were preaching just by taking communion. So let me review. Because Paul and Silas reasoned and explained and gave evidence and preached, we should do so too. And what was the result of such reasoning and explaining and giving evidence and preaching or proclaiming? Two results back then are the same two results we can expect today. Two results, different results. The first result was some believed in Thessalonica and were saved, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with the great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. That's a good outcome. Some believed and were saved, but that wasn't the only outcome in Thessalonica. Some, on the other hand, resisted the word and refused to believe. Verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Back then, as the word of God was properly ministered by the apostles of God in the synagogue of the Jews, some, thank God, believed and were saved. And when we share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with the love of Christ, with biblical accuracy, some people will believe and be saved. Amen? Amen. But back then, there were also some who weren't saved. 
They heard the word of God like the others, but they resisted the word of God. And they refused to believe in Jesus. And that'll happen too when we share our faith. But when we share our faith, we leave the results to God. We're not responsible to (laughs) give faith to the person who needs it. We leave that with the Lord. And that's how it still goes, like it did in Thessalonica. Some believe and some refuse to believe. But we leave the results to the Lord and we tether ourselves to the Bible. As we're sharing our faith, we tether ourselves to the Bible so we don't get very far from it. Which brings me to the question, do you have the Bible with you every day? It may not need to be this nice study Bible that's big and thick. Do you have a device? Could you put an app on your device that gives you God's word? Not commentaries on God's word. Not even devotions on God's word, but just the pure word of God on your device? I told you before, when I went to tire and battery, because I had a flat tire, because there's so many potholes in this city, (laughs) they were putting the new tire on my car, and I had a Bible with me in my glove box. So I went into the waiting room, and I started reading my Bible. And a man came up to me and said, do you know anything about the Bible? I said, well, a little bit. He said, can I talk to you? Sure. And for 45 minutes, we talked about what needed to be reasoned through from Scripture with him and his life circumstances. That would not have happened if I was reading my Bible on my phone. He wouldn't have known I was reading the Bible on my iPhone. But when I had a hard copy of God's Word in the waiting room, he couldn't miss the fact I was reading God's Word. So today, even as back then, as we share the gospel, some believe and some refuse to believe. We leave the results with the Lord. We tether ourselves to the Bible. We don't drift far and wide from the Bible. We don't just give our opinions. They're worth about zero. But we pin ourselves also to the simple gospel message. We tether ourselves when we witness to the Bible, and we focus with a laser beam focus as we share the Bible and share Christ on the gospel, which is this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, Old Testament prophecies, and he was buried, prove he died, and rose from the dead according to the scriptures, messianic prophecies of a resurrection in the Old Testament, and he was seen. That's the gospel. Christ died for sins and arose. In its seminal, most boiled down state, that's the gospel. Don't depart from it. Don't change it. Don't move off God's word when you're talking about Christ because Christ is the center of God's word. And look at to what lengths those in Thessalonica refused to believe. <laughs> they were not passive in their unbelief. They were not benign in their unbelief. They went to certain lengths because they really didn't want Jesus Christ to have a hearing in Thessalonica. They were aggressive. What did they do? What lengths did they go to to refuse to believe? Well, they became 
jealous, according to verse 5a. They teamed up with wicked persons, according to verse 5b. They became an unruly mob, according to 5 verse 5 part C. They pressed charges against Jason, according to verses 6 and 7. But you know, it is noteworthy, although they're doing all these things, it's noteworthy that the mob back then in Thessalonica was right in how they read the situation. They didn't like the situation, but they were right in how they interpret it, namely, but that by that point in church history, believers in Jesus had in fact upset the whole world, the known world, around the Mediterranean basin. Does anybody look at the Church of Jesus Christ in Nassau and say, they've turned over the world for the better. Uh, God help us. Those who rejected Christ, by that point in the church history, they knew that believers in Jesus Christ had in fact upset the world, their words. They also understood that Christ's followers, by that point in church history, had differentiated between King Jesus and the Roman Caesar. They were right. The Greek word which is translated another in verse seven means of another kind, of another nature. King Jesus had another kind of nature than Caesar's because Caesar's nature, like every baby born except Jesus Christ, is a sin nature, a propensity to sin. They had it right. They didn't like it. They had it right. Goes on. They disturbed the peace, according to verse 8. More, they pushed the authorities far enough that the authorities demanded that a monetary bond be posted. Refundable only if Paul and Silas stopped representing Christ and left the city. That's the lengths to which they went. Here's the clinching question as I close this message. Here's what the question that makes the exposition I've just given you applicable. The exposition which I've given you answers the question, what does it say and what does it mean? But the question I'm about to ask you answers the question, so what? What difference do these verses and these evangelistic principles make? This is the question. I wonder which Jason wanted most. The refund of his money or the apostles to keep ministering Christ in his city? Remember, he posts the bond. You'll only get it back if they stop ministering Christ and get out of the city. I wonder what he wanted most. His money back or Jesus Christ to be proclaimed? I wonder what you want most. I wonder what I want most. I wonder what Jason wanted most. The refund of the bond he put up or the apostles to keep ministering Jesus Christ in his city? I wonder. Now, to land the plane here, I want you to imagine you're talking to somebody after the service lets out who didn't happen to be here, didn't happen to watch the live stream. I want you to imagine talking to yourself with someone who didn't hear this sermon. I want you to imagine that person 
who hasn't heard the sermon ask you this. What does Acts 17, 1 to 9, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, tell us to do? Here's what I hope you'd answer. Talk with lost persons. Stick with the Bible and center on the gospel. Be ready to reason, explain, give evidence, and to proclaim. And then leave the results with the Lord. If you do those things, then you have had an open, teachable heart and mind to the Lord. If you say, that's not for me. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm nervous. I don't want to be rejected. The people I know are hopeless cases. If that's your outlook, then you've missed the point. What does Acts 17, 1 to 9 tell us to do? Talk with lost persons. Stick with the Bible, center on the gospel, be ready to reason, be ready to explain, be ready to give evidence and to proclaim or preach and then leave the results to God. I long to see our church grow by conversion growth. The angels won't have that happen. We cannot look to the angels and say, share the gospel, angels. They can't. They long to look into our salvation, but they can't share the gospel. Only you can. Only I can. And if we don't, who will? If we don't share the gospel, who will? Share the gospel. Leave the results to God. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We want to touch the ink in our Bibles to see if it's still wet because it is so relevant and pertinent to where we live and work and recreate. Lord, motivate us, embolden us, give us love to talk with lost persons. And when we do to stick with the Bible, and when we do to center on the gospel, not some rabbit trails, by your spirit make us ready to reason ready to explain. And if we don't know how to explain, tell the lost person, I'll find an answer for you and get back to you. Help us to be spirit-enabled to reason, explain, and give evidence to Christ and to proclaim. We can't wait to see what you'll do. We just can't wait to see what you'll do. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name together. Amen.